Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. Welcome to another special episode. This one is focused on Canada's need to break down the barriers that stop people with disabilities from getting good jobs. Think Tank Cardis has released a landmark report breaking down work barriers for people with disabilities. It challenges decision makers to move beyond an emphasis on income assistance to close the employment gap that too many Canadians face because of a disability. Consider this, only 5% of federal government disability spending is on programs promoting employment. Most goes to income supports of one form or another. And yet the poverty rate of people with disabilities was 13.5% in 2019, disproportionately higher than it is for other Canadians. The Carter's report asks key questions to help identify which barriers keep people with disabilities from finding rewarding, meaningful jobs so that we can find ways to break down those barriers. That's what we're going to do now with Disability Without Poverty National Director Robbie Aketter and Cardis Vice President of External Affairs Brian Dykema. Well, it's good to have you both on the podcast. Let's start with the big picture. How do we define disability? And I'm especially interested in learning how that relates to the workplace. Rabia, maybe we could start with you. Well, disability has been historically medicalized and the focus has been on rehabilitation. Uh, A more modern, more inclusive approach to disability that centers around human rights is recognizing that disability is a social construct, that yes, people have um, impairments or conditions or, or, you know, incidents in their lives Uh, either from birth or at some point uh, in their life that results in them living with a disability in various forms, whether visible or invisible. So disability is quite diverse. The the best way, I think that's what Rabia described is exactly right. And that's actually behind the work on our paper as well. I think I think sometimes it's helpful for people to hear, like have an understanding of what what that means, right? We hear the terms. So an impairment is something that that provides some sort of limitation, for instance. So let's say somebody has lost the use of their legs for whatever reason. Perhaps they were born with it, as Rabia mentioned, or perhaps it came later in their life. So they're unable to walk. An impairment is the fact that their legs are not not working uh, in, in a way that they can walk normally. A disability is the fact that the workplace, for instance, let's use that as an example, does not provide, does not have the structures for them to go about their business. So let's take an accountant for an example. An accountant um, with that has an impairment with their legs is still able to do accounting work. Uh, they're able to do taxes and all the rest of that stuff. But if they come to an office building that has stairways in it or many stairways in it or no ramp or what have you, that's where they become actually disabled. It's not the impairment that prevents them from doing the work. It's the social environment in which they're working that prevents them from doing the work. And I think from Cardis's perspective, and what we talked about at our roundtable with with Rabia yesterday, was that those social environments matter. And it actually shows just how deeply connected we are. And I think it's also hopeful because it says, 
if the if the disability is something in the social environment, something that comes because we've constructed it that way, it means we can actually um, work together to find ways for people with with impairments to actually not be disabled, if you know what I mean. They're able to continue to do their work, and I think that's that provides us with a with a glimmer of hope, and I think is a is a fundamental and important reorienting of how we discuss this issue. So disability, what I'm hearing then is disability is something that is, I guess, a, a, a condition or a state within a particular context because of the way things have been constructed or structured in some way. It is. It is um, fluid. You know, it, it can be circumstantial uh, in various contexts. However, however, it is, in fact, uh, something that creates significant barriers in people's lives uh, that need a solution like uh, accessibility laws that then, you know, address these barriers, these structural systemic uh, ways that we have designed and organized society and, and environments and organizations and institutions. Uh, but not in all cases can we fully deconstruct how we have designed society to, to eliminate the impact of a quote-unquote impairment. Can we explore that uh, a little bit? What do you mean by situations where we may not be able to reconstruct uh, society or, or the way things have been arranged? Well, again, it really depends on the nature of the disability experience that somebody has. So I was born with an eye condition. It's a recessive eye condition. I could see a lot and I couldn't see a lot. Over time, my vision uh, became less and less and I started to identify myself as blind. And I actually kind of, you know, make fun out of the word visually impaired because for me, it's like, well, if I was impaired, I could be detoxed, you know, and I, and I can't be. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, since it's Cardis, I could probably get a little, little, little religious on you here. And I would say, you know, if God didn't make my eyes perfect, you can't rehabilitate them and get rid of the impairment, you know, I, like they were made perfect in that form, right? In that natural form, they were perfect. It's not an impairment. It's the way my eyes biologically are. And hence, I can't see. That's it. There's not much repair fixing, rehabilitating, or, or removal of barriers that you can do to make me see, quote, unquote. Yeah. So that, that's, sorry, go ahead, Rabia. So, so, you know, um, and then there are people with varying degrees of developmental disabilities, right? So there are lots of people, for example, who are very high functioning with intellectual disabilities, who could work, who could fully participate in society, who can take care of most of their daily living needs. And they might just face barriers in counting money or telling time or uh, being able to figure out whether it's hot or cold outside and, and you know, make choices about, choices about dressing, but they can wash dishes, they can serve food, they can clean, they can organize, they can be, you know, really methodical and, and detail oriented, and they can do like, you know, data entry and data processing and coding. But then there are people who may have more significant, uh, you know, cognitive uh, limitations as a result of 
uh, a birth injury or a genetic condition or a head injury that results in significant impairment to their brain, to their abilities to understand and function. So no matter what we do for them, they need care, they need support, and they cannot work given the nature of their disability. Yeah, Daniel, I think I think what Robbie mentions is critical. It's critical because I think there's there's always two things that we two polls that we often go to in, in debates about about these questions. And one is that we go to the sort of natural debate, right? So saying like, well, everything is just natural. That's just the way you are. So I'm diabetic. My pancreas doesn't work, and I need to take insulin. And some people will try to explain. I remember somebody once said to me, "No, you're not diabetic. You just struggle with diabetes." And I said. No, I'm diabetic. My pancreas doesn't work. Like it doesn't work. And there's at, at this stage in, in, in our medical uh, advancement, there's nothing that's going to make it work. I'm, I will always be a diabetic as part of my identity. So there's a certain sort of natural uh, objective nature of it, whether it's cognitive or whether it's physical, as you know, in the case of my pancreas or Rabia's vision, what have you. There's an objective side of it. And there is, of course, that subjective and social side to it. And I think both of those things need to be considered. And, and if you don't do that, I think you end up doing uh, you, you end up doing, a, I think, a bit of damage to, um, you know, proper dialogue into the people themselves. Well, one of the subjective sides of this, of course, is the workplace. So I want to I want to move into that area if we could. Cardus has used a phrase a lot uh, before that phrase is work is about more than money. And that shows up in the report, Breaking Down Work Barriers for People with Disabilities. And that report also says that work is integral to human dignity. That's a, that's a direct quote from the report. Brian, maybe you could explain what exactly that means. Where's the connection to, to human dignity? And I really want to relate it to the, the place and the barriers that those with disabilities face in finding, getting, or keeping work. Part of it, Daniel, part of it comes from, um, there's a couple of things here, and, and you know, Ravi already mentioned religion, and uh, empirically, um, people want to work. There's something inherently, uh, seemingly inherent about the human desire to create socially useful goods or services. People want to create, they want to serve their neighbors, they want to sort of fulfill their potential. And what I often think happens is that in society, and I don't I don't know the, the degree to which is the case, but we make certain assumptions about certain types of people and say, well, that drive is not there. Really what we should be doing is caring for them this way or that way. And I find that a little bit paternalistic because if you look at the empirical uh, data, over 80% of people with disabilities say they want to work and they want to work more. That is actually as high or higher than people who are um, uh, not struggling with disabilities or not, not uh, don't have disabilities. And so what we're trying to make the case for is that there seems to be something human about the fact that um, people want to work, they want to create, they want to contribute to society, and all kinds of data that we've done, uh, we've seen in, in economic literature and psychological literature say that work contributes all sorts of things, it contributes a sense of meaning to people's lives. People who work tend to be healthier, it actually has benefits for your body, there's a certain rhythms that come in place, of course there are limitations to that as well. Um, psychologically, people who are working tend to tend to suffer less from depression. Social isolation goes down. There are all kinds of benefits to work that don't show up on the paycheck. And what we're saying in our paper is that um, 
There's no reason why those with disabilities who can and want to work, and empirically, there's lots of evidence that people with disabilities can and do want to work. There's no reason why they should be uh, prevented from working. We should be trying to get rid of barriers so that people can actually sort of fulfill what it means to be a human being. And, and one of the things that came in our roundtable, and I'll, I'll be quick, Daniel, is that doesn't mean everything. It doesn't mean that you're only human if you work. Uh, I think that's a mistake we make in our day and age too. Um, but we're simply saying that work is one part of what it means to be human. And insofar as possible, we should try to allow as many people as possible to do that. What I would add to that is uh, people do have a desire to work, uh, but that that sense of work isn't always the idea of paid work. It's, it's, it's the feeling of being productive, of contributing. Uh, contributing in whatever is meaningful to a person. So people with disabilities have that desire to contribute, have that desire to be productive, to be viewed as productive. But it, it's also how, as a society, we measure productivity. We often measure productivity in that form of paid work. And paid workplaces, again, expect a certain level of productivity because of the way we've we've sort of designed and defined work environments that it's about speed and quantity and and you know um just this rapid rapid fire pace that we operate in you know an assembly line has to be just churning out you know thousands of items a day or, or what have you or you know if you're processing calls in a call center you have certain statistics that you have to achieve so so there's a constant pressure and measure of productivity that also can be a barrier depending on the nature of the person's disability so every person with or without a disability has this desire to produce and feel productive. Um, and, and a workplace allows for that to happen. A workplace is also, um, you know, a, a space for, for community, uh, building relationships, feeling like you belong. Uh, there's, there's this whole social di uh, dimension to work that contributes to a sense of inclusion and belonging. That's also equally important to people with disabilities. But a lot of times there are barriers to them being socially included in the workplace. And there are barriers because of the expectations of productivity in a workplace. Tell me about the barriers then. If you were to name and describe the situation in Canada, how would you do that? Often it's attitudes. People presume that people with disabilities don't have skills to contribute. So attitudes are the biggest barrier uh, from, from that perspective of, of uh, people with disabilities uh, attaining employment, that employers, hiring managers uh, have negative attitudes and perceptions of people with disabilities and certain disabilities, especially if they're visible. Uh, people don't feel safe disclosing and requesting accommodation to overcome the barriers they experience. So it could be as simple as, you know, again, I'll use vision loss because it's something easily understood. Um, half the population wears glasses or contacts to correct their ability, vision to, uh, you know, their ability to, to read print and see their screen and and, and see distances and things like that. So um, let's use vision as an example. Somebody with a disability gets an office job. They need a large monitor. 
You know, today our monitors have gotten bigger and bigger, but in the past, a large monitor was a disability-related accommodation, and it was a big deal to get. Uh, a lot of times employers think that it's really going to cost them way too much to accommodate somebody. And sometimes the barriers are just simply physical, as Brian described earlier, that, you know, somebody who cannot walk uses a scooter or or a walker or crutches or canes or, you know, a wheelchair, and they encounter a workplace with stairs. They just can't get into work. So, so Daniel, uh, Rabia makes some really great points there. And just a couple of uh, statistics on that. One of the, she mentioned the fact that employers, for instance, often think that the cost of accommodation are high. The, the data actually bear that out. We looked at it in our paper. A lot of employers think that the cost of accommodating people with disabilities is very, very high, but the costs are actually quite low. We're talking less than $1,000 in most, case. uh, most cases. We're talking four or $500. And this is an opportunity, I say, you know, where our public policy has done really well. There are actually tremendous amount of government programs to ensure that those accommodations can be even supported by the state. So, for example, the, the, the simple one that Robbie mentioned about stairs, there's actually there are government programs for businesses, small businesses and large businesses who want to put in, say, a wheelchair ramp. That that is hugely supported. And that's the type of of of. I think state support and government and, and, and employer support, those are the small steps that can be made. And one of the things I want to hear, if there are business people listening to this, this call, is to say, you may think that the cost of accommodation are high. The, like, the likelihood of it being low is actually, is actually real. And, and not only that, but there's real opportunities to help. And I think it's one example of where government could do even more, I think, to remove barriers and provide an on-ramp uh, for people to get to get into work, in this case, literally. I wonder if um, you might be able to answer this, but actually both of you, breaking down work barriers, it raises a lot of questions. Um, and you did have a roundtable together, CARDIS and Disability Without Poverty, to discuss this in late March. How? What did you learn about what, you know, various organizations or others who are involved in this area and who have known about these issues longer say than someone like me has, um, what, did you, what did you learn in that conversation about what barriers really need to be broken down, kind of where the next steps need to be? Can I, can I start? Because I actually think this will be one that will be helpful for understanding how Rabia's organization, Disability Without Poverty, and Cardis's work on, um, on work uh, actually align. So, Disability without poverty, and Ravia, maybe I'll give you a bit of a time as soon as I'm done. Like I think you should tell us what what you guys are actually looking for. Um, but I'll just sub- summarize it quickly. Let Ravia, they're looking for income supports, and I think and what Cardis's paper is saying is we need more employment supports. And I think in our in our culture, we often there are people who want to say that those two things are mutually exclusive. Um, that income support and employment support are, are mutually, you either got to work or you got to earn your living at a paid employment. What we're saying is no. Um, sometimes what you need is the income support to, to actually be able to get you to work, to be able to allow you to have the patience the st- the, or the stability to, to get to work or to increase. And not only when you're working, that you are not losing the income supports, uh, that when you get to work, you're losing the other income supports. And that's one of the things that stood out for me, Rabia. I don't know if it stood out for you, but how in many places across this country, there are still what you would call, what I call the cliff of work, that many people who are on disability supports, the 
idea of going to work is something they want. We know that 76% of people with disabilities have the ability to work. Over, over 80% of them want to go to work. But when you start looking at whether you're going to lose your benefits or you're going to lose the ability to get pharmacy care or what have you, by going to work, many people say, look, it doesn't make sense for me to get to work. And one of the key takeaways from us in this that roundtable was we need to actually take those cliffs away. Uh, we need to take those cliffs away so that we're not removing income supports just like that, uh, but actually providing people with a chance to see the benefits and the fruits of their work so that they're actually doing economically better overall. And so maybe that's a good segue for Rabia to, to, to tell you a little bit about what DWP is after. And, and I can I can certainly do that. And what I can add to what you've said, Brian, there is the fact that, yes, people have the desire to work. Um, it, if they are on benefits, it's, it's not that um, the fear of losing the, the income it, it, or, or, you know, the, the fact that, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's not even sense. They can't afford to work. And the reason they can't afford to work is the kind of job that they're able to get may not have uh, prescription drug benefits, right? And they have medications to manage their their pain and, and the nature of their disability that cost a lot, a lot of money. And if that employer isn't giving them benefits equivalent to what they get on their provincial support program or income supports, uh, then they really can't afford to work. It just, you know, that's, that's their issue. They want to work, but they can't afford to because they won't be able to pay for their medications. And, you know, so, so that's where we need to work with provinces uh, to, to understand uh, that they don't need to create these barriers for people, that they need to support people. And sometimes the nature of the person's disability is that they can only work um, what we would deem part-time, but it's full-time for them, given their disability-related day-to-day um, barriers, the, 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 the physical ability that they have to be able to work and manage their disability. So... You know, somebody might be able to work only 10 hours a week. They want to work. They, they, they would love to work. But when they work those 10 hours a week, they jeopardize their, their income supports and risk losing the benefits that come with those income supports. So then they face a barrier to employment. Disability yeah. without poverty is a grassroots national movement advocating for the Canada Disability Benefit, which is a proposed national supplement designed after the Guaranteed Income Supplement for Seniors that will top up other sources of of disability income, provincial disability incomes, because the majority of people with disabilities in this country are living in poverty if they're accessing income supports. There are about 52 different um, poverty lines in this country and none of the provincial uh, supports uh, offered as income to people with disabilities touch that poverty line. For example, in Ontario, in Toronto, the the official poverty line is just over $2,000. Uh, a person with a disability on the Ontario Disability Support Program, Income Support Program, ODSP, 
gets $1,169. If they live in a group home, for example, the group home charges $1,021. They are left with $148 to pay for their transportation, to pay for their any phone costs, to pay for their personal care products, hygiene, clothing, uh, any, any other incidental costs. They really cannot afford to work, to even, even you know, attempt to look for work. So the su federal supplement that we're advocating for would give people a livable income so that they can live a life with dignity. And in every spiritual tradition, in every human tradition, fundamental human rights universally is for people to live with dignity. Yeah, and it, there's just, a, if I could add a couple of things to support Ravi on that, that one of the one of the things she mentioned, like the fact that some people can only work 10 hours uh, a week, for instance, that actually shows up in the data that many people want to work. They may not be able to fit the box uh, of the 40 hour, the nine to five, 40 hour work week, right? But studies show, and we highlight them in our paper, that even two hours of work a week have tremendous benefits for people's quality of life, uh, their, uh, their psychological outcomes, the outcomes of their families, people, even two hours of work has a huge benefit for the families of people who are disabled. And it strikes me that overall, we should be providing ways to, uh, one of the things that Cardis says is that we should be leaning towards employment, but so that both employment and government supports, whether they're individually or together, actually create a living wage. And that's really, really critical. Um, we know that currently um, only 34.8% of people's overall income comes from employment uh, uh, sources if they're disabled. That means that we're talking about 65% is coming from government income sources. And when you start asking questions about, um, about whether or not there's any low-hanging fruit to sort of fix, I think there was. And that was something that came up in our, in our uh, conversation yesterday, that the situation where Rabia just described, the person who is, could work, wants to work, is probably able to earn some employment income, but is deeply concerned about losing their, their uh, pharmacy benefits because they, they're on meds of some sort that would be too costly, that if they were went to work, they would actually be further behind uh, in terms of their cash flow per month. That's the type of low-hanging fruit that we need to pick in, in the policy world. We need to try to get those things. And th that's still in place in a variety of uh, uh, provinces and, and federally. It's that low-hanging fruit so that um, or people who can work 10 hours a week um, need some sort of supplement to get up to the what would be a living wage for somebody earning 40 hours. It's still what the argument we're making is it's still cheaper for the government if you're if you're paying, you know, you're paying that. The quality of life of people who are disabled goes way, way up. And not just in terms of their ability to income, but because work is about more than money. And um, so we think that there's some low-hanging fruit and there's ways in which the income supports that DWP are seeking and the work supports that Cardinals is seeking in this paper are not opposed to each other, but can actually work together to improve the quality of life of Canadians with disabilities. I wonder how much of this really is about the cultural understanding we have in Canada and probably in North America and maybe even in the Western world that work is primarily about income. And so the mentality, whether we like it or not, um, or maybe even whether we recognize it or not, the mentality behind clawing back benefits when someone is working is, ah, you're, you're able to work, therefore you don't need the help. 
Whereas what I'm hearing from both of you is that that's that's a that's a that's kind of a false choice uh, to make, and it doesn't really describe the situation at all, especially when you consider that part of the reason for working has nothing to do with income or with money. It has part of, you know, being fully human, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And, and you bring up a really good point. And, and the, the fact there is also, uh, when I talk about the poverty line across the country, the disability poverty line is higher. For a person with a disability, it costs more. Again, I'll use my own example because, you know, it's easier for me to reference myself. As somebody who's blind, who works, I work a lot. You know, I, I get paid for, you know, a 40-hour work week, let's say. But I work way more than that because it takes me longer to do certain things. Um, I need some supports to do certain things. I'm lucky that I can afford the supports I need. I have four children. I have a husband. I run a household as well. I do well at working. My strength is working. However, I have to employ people to accommodate me at home to keep my household running, to get me to work, to, to you know, from point, to a, point A to point B, because I'm always in a different place. You can't just teach me rehabilitation skills, for example, to get me from point A to point B, because my type of work is in different spaces constantly. And as somebody who's blind, I can't always be learning new routes. So it costs me a lot more to work. It costs me a lot more to grocery shop. It just overall costs me in my daily living activities. So I spend a lot of money. I actually don't save. I spend. I'm contributing to the community. I'm employing people. I'm contributing to other people's quality of life and I'm contributing to our economy. And, and that's what people with disabilities will do when they have access to income, whether earned or a federal supplement. They're not going to be saving and investing. They are going to be making ends meet. They are going to be improving their quality of life. They are going to be spending that money to improve their quality of life to, to have a better life. You know, a basic livable income will be spent to improve their quality of life and will contribute to our economy. What do you think is going to be the toughest thing to change or where, where what would be the toughest barriers to break down? I think I think you sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier, Daniel, but I do think that there's this this notion that um, we have a bit of a um, a bit of an all or nothing mentality sometimes when it comes to work, particularly when it comes to disabilities. And we have this notion of like the, the worthy income government support recipient and the unworthy one. And I think sometimes there are some biases in there. Um, so, you know, a, a great example is, um, is the fact that, uh, you know, the person who's working 10 hours a week, um, the, the way our systems or structures are set up for income support and support for disabilities and stuff doesn't often have the flexity, uh, flexibility to represent or to properly account for the, the real diversity that is in the, the, the world of people who have disabilities. It, it is a very diverse world, as Rabia mentioned at the beginning, you know, um, it, it, it disabilities and, and, and some of the things can range from, you know, blindness to schizophrenia to uh, a, a, um, a time-limited uh, broken, broken foot, for instance. Like these are, there's a huge range of, of heterogeneity in, in that. And I think one of our challenges is that um, 
we have we think of disabled as disabled as disabled. It's not actually. It's there's a unique human story behind each one of those things, and it's a hard thing for the state to, to get there. What I I also think there's a little bit of um, at least in the way that our income support programs are up. I think Canada's turning the corner on this. I think we've turned a long way. Is that we've often thought in terms of all or nothing. It's like you're either on income support because you can't do anything, um, or you're off because you can do something. And what what I think is uh, one of the and we've seen this in other areas, Daniel, the Canada Worker Benefits and things like that. I think that the insights we've learned from those policy spots need to make their way into uh, disability policy, particularly on income and, and employment supports. They haven't gotten there yet. I mean, one of the things we heard on our our call yesterday from both uh, uh, people in Ontario and British Columbia, for instance, um, is is that those those systems are still a little bit old and they need to be updated. And that's part of what Cardis is is hoping to do. But but it's the it's the hidden things that that are really hard. Robbie mentioned it: the fact that you know you need to pay somebody to drive you if you if you are if you're not able to see the road, or you know, or if you're quadriplegic, for instance, it costs a lot more money to get places. And I, I think that those are things that um, we need to hear. I, I'm actually really thankful. And Rabia, maybe you could mention it. It came up on one of our calls from somebody who's in the world of finance uh, yesterday on our call who said, attitudes are beginning to change. Uh, people are realizing that um, disabilities can actually um, serve in some ways as an asset. One of one of the comments yesterday, and I won't attribute it to anyone, but said that um, you can, there are certain things in certain workplaces that someone with a disability may have better insight into than somebody who doesn't. And we actually need to start looking for that as a value add um, in the world as well. So that's just a few thoughts from my end. Well, again, there, there's a recognition, Brian, that you know the lived experience of people with disabilities adds uh, a different dimension of diversity to creativity and thought uh, in, in uh, a workplace. So, you know, when we talk about diverse teams and we talk about bringing people from different backgrounds, uh, racially, culturally, uh, gender-wise, we, everybody comes with their perspective and their, their context. And when we add disability to that mix, that is also adding to the richness of creativity and thought uh, and, and, you know, um, innovation that we need to learn to leverage people with disabilities have new energy and new ideas to bring to the table. But, uh, you know, again, coming back to uh, income and, and, and the fact that most people with disabilities live with live in poverty through this pandemic, we have realized so much. We have realized as, you know, able-bodied Canadians have realized that, they can face barriers to transportation, that they can face barriers to employment, that the accommodation of working at home should not be a big deal. Um, my sister has the same eye condition as me, works in IT in the financial sector. And when she found it difficult to commute uh, because her vision was deteriorating and she asked one of our big banks to accommodate her by allowing her to work at home. Her, her um, accommodation request was medicalized and experts were consulted who are not experts with lived experience and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, they, they came back and said, oh, no, you can commute. And she's like, it really takes way too much energy for 
you know, for me to navigate public transit, to relearn a route, to relearn a a new office building and facility. And it just takes up so much of my time that when I get sit down at my desk to work, I'm already drained. I rather work at home. My productivity will be far better and it'll just, you know, it's, it's a basic accommodation. What's the big deal? Everybody can work. People are working offshores. And yet it was such a big deal. And through this pandemic, it became second nature when it became a need for able-bodied Canadians. So we have learned many, many, many lessons through this pandemic of things that we've taken for granted uh, as the majority being able-bodied that we as disabled people were calling for forever. And these are now best practices that we have to incorporate in the future. And we have to imagine and reimagine a new new future, a new um, building forward that in fact is better and includes people with disabilities and, and includes people with disabilities through the Canada Disability Benefit as well. I've I heard one more thing. Oh, go ahead, Brian. Yeah. yeah, just 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 a brief thing. Just mentioned about the, the the early thing that Rabia started with on the fact that unique there's a unique contribution. I just I actually think that came out yesterday. It's actually come in my uh, uh, conversations with Rabia over these past months. And there are things that you learn, even not even in the, like there's the workplace stuff you learn about unique insights and stuff like that. But even in terms of character and virtue, and I just as a as a Christian. Uh, so there's actually something to be learned there. One of our, um, you know, at sort of the core of at least our, the Christian faith is the notion that often the greatest strength is to be found in weakness. Of course, Jesus in our tradition died on the cross and, and it was through that place of abject weakness that, that the greatest strength was found and that, that you know, humanity was, was, was saved. And I actually think there is a sense in which the, a society that would recognize that what the majority of us see as weakness can actually bring tremendous strength. And, and we can learn from the grace and the courage, I think the virtues exhibited by people who, who have disabilities who, would, who are often go forgotten, um, that I think is an, is an underappreciated and underrated part of this. I think one of the reasons Rabia is having, like we're having trouble with, with getting disability stuff on the agenda of governments and the fact that it's one of the latest things to come around on work stuff, on income supports and so on, is, is often it's forgotten. People are forgotten. And it's because we do live in a culture that values, you know, uh, extreme beauty, extreme strength, extreme success. There's something about that. And I think there's something very healthy about a culture that takes its wealth, that takes its strength and says, look, we want to include and bring, bring people who are, are in, the, in the eyes of the world weak in to, to actually help make us stronger. And so... I just wanted to make sure that that's noted because I talk economics all the time, but I think there's another plane on which this is operating that I think is crucial for our culture as well. Well, I've known you long enough, Brian, to know that if you ever mention anything economic, there there will be something uh, spiritual or cultural coming within moments after that uh, that economic thought. So I'm not at all surprised to hear that from you. You've both mentioned, I think, things that do point to uh, some hope for change, uh, maybe some of the, the leading edges of where that 
that change or that positive change may come, which I'm very pleased to hear. I just want to end on one other thought, uh, and maybe I could get something from both of you on this. A lot of the the, a lot of the change has to happen at the government level, either provincial or federal, maybe even municipal. And, and some of it has to happen from employers themselves and from, from their attitudes and from their willingness to, um, uh, to, to, to bring on employees who will have varying abilities in, in, in various ways. Who else besides government and employers needs to be active here? What other sectors of society uh, should be active in this area? I think everybody. I think there are opportunities uh, for uh, civil society as a whole. Like when we're talking about nonprofits, when we are talking about cultural institutions, when we're talking about religious institutions, I mean, how many religious institutions are actually fully accessible and, and hire people with disabilities? Right. Um, and, and so we have so many historic facilities, whether they're uh, synagogues or churches or mosques or gurdwaras or temples uh, that are not fully accessible to people with disabilities. They can't enter them or if they can enter them, um, you know, the, the services facilitated inside are not accessible to them and nor are they employed in those environments. So everybody has a role to play to support people with disabilities and their desire to be productive and to be included to be uh to feel a sense of belonging and community and and we need to start thinking out of the box we need to reimagine the future that includes people with and without disabilities because as we know long covid is disabling more people whether temporarily or permanently. So our disability stats, which are 22% uh, pre-pandemic are bound to increase. And, and we need to keep that in mind. And as you know, people of faith, we know that there are things that can change in our lives that we may end up with a lived experience of disability. And we need to be mindful of that as well. So let's create an environment, a society, systems and structures that we can also benefit from and use in the future. I would agree with that. We actually noted that in our paper too, Daniel, that there needs to be a wide, wide range. I think obviously employers, if we're talking about work, employers have a huge role because they're the people who employ. And I, I think I'm pleased to see that there are a large number of uh, employers and organizations uh, getting around that for inclusive uh, employment and so on. I think trade unions can play a role. Uh, we, we had a uh, trade union uh, participate in, in our roundtable and mentioned the ways in which they support people with disabilities, either through accommodations or through WSIB claims, which is an Ontario thing, or, or even within the collective agreement, having um, particular language that allows for accommodations and, and also supports for people with disabilities. That's another example. Um, but also civil society plays a huge role in terms of connecting and, and uh and on the religious front, you know, Rabia is religious and so am I. And I, I, it was, it's been really great to connect with her on that because I do think that there's a, that cultural notion of the human person, regardless of their ability, uh, as, as someone uh, possessing dignity um, is, is a cultural thing that we need to continue to hear in a world that is uh, increasingly materialistic um, and, and utilitarian. And um, I think that's a critical one as well, though not primarily economic. That's great. 
Thank you both. I'm looking forward to learning more and seeing more about how things change and how policy might change. Rabia Ketter and Brian Dykema, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, we'd love to hear from you about your experience if you're someone with a disability who's faced barriers to finding a good job, or maybe there's someone close to you who's had such challenges. Tell us about it by writing to media at cardus.ca. Cardus is spelled C-A-R-D-U-S. If you're interested in the report, Breaking Down Work Barriers for People with Disabilities, check out cardus.ca. We'll also provide a link to it and to a French summary of the report in the episode description. I hope you found this episode edifying and interesting. For the whole team here at Cardus, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Thanks for listening.